give him two lips. But also, Homeboy's vibe is just like. You having fun? (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. I finished the verse. Hello. Hello. I'm Maxie. Hello, I'm Carolyn. And this is Mutable Immutables, the show where we quibble queerly. Uh-huh. Uh, we exchange pleasantries, too. We also sometimes take month-long unannounced breaks, but you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Shit fucking happens. And when it fucking rains, I swear to God. Ugh. How okay, have you been? Well, in full transparency. Well, in full transparency to our listeners, uh, Max and I had to debrief for about an hour because, well, <laughs> Max has had a bad month and I have had a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we're coming from. Um, but now I'm better now that I am not waiting on roadside assistance for four and a half hours. <laughs> yes. And I um, am finally, finally <laughs> In my new apartment, and I won't go into the full story with y'all because I'm not going to burden you with all that, but suffice it to say, it was comically, (laughs) farcically bullshit, all of the shit that happened to me, but it's over now, it's in the past, everything fucking happened, it was a fucking nightmare, anyway, but we're not here to talk about that today. So yeah. Um, What are we here to talk about? we've, we... Uh, are talking about gay shit. Call me Michelle Visage because mm. do you want more gay shit? Head over to immutableimmutables.com. Click the like button, subscribe, <laughs> leave a comment. Yeah. Yes. So uh, we are, the last episode, uh, we had done a brief uh, intro into what we are calling our city series, uh, which is going to be um, a series of several different um, mini arcs or um, mini series about gay history and gay culture in different cities. Uh, and we are going to start with New York, which we did a little bit of an intro for last time. Uh, but tonight we're going to start to actually get into some of the, I guess, nitty gritty, some of the actual uh, details and events and uh, facts and stuff. Um, but remember, we are not historians. Uh, so please don't cancel us in the comments. Because you can leave comments on podcasts, right? Is that a thing? I don't fucking know. I don't know. Okay. Um, Listen, I've been dissociating for two weeks. I don't know how to do this anymore. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. So, yes, like Max said, uh, we sort of started last week talking. I don't, I think our time period is like 1890s to like the end of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So like 19. 41 like yeah um yeah because i don't really want to talk about world war ii because it did a lot for uh gay culture regarding gay culture so we will talk about it another time this time we're going to talk about new york city and uh so last week we talked about uh kind of the three main gayborhoods 
uh, let's see. So Harlem, obviously, Greenwich Village, and what was that? <laughs> what? Not the Bowery. I think it's Lower East Manhattan. Please hold. Oh, Times Square. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Harlem, Greenwich Village, Times Square. Jesus Christ. Because Times Square historically was absolutely not the Times Square we know today. No. Um, and we'll sort of briefly mention it, but uh, so a lot of what we're talking about today is going to have to do with, um, is going to take place in Harlem a lot, uh, a couple of things in uh, like Greenwich Village, um, and then just kind of all up and down uh, lower Manhattan to, what's it, uh, Midtown? I don't know. I don't know New York geography, but I'm doing my best. And Max has helped me to uh, catalog some of the important locations that we'll talk about. I feel uh, like you will know New York geography much. by the end of this, though. Yeah, I mean, it's a grid system, motherfucker. Uh, can't remember who made that joke. I think that's a John Mulaney joke, actually. Yikes. Uh, okay, so we sort of have already talked about a little bit how prohibition uh moved the movement forward kind of when things went underground and then uh everybody had to go underground to party because alcohol was illegal everywhere um and so this meant that kind of not just like i'm going to say street people but what i mean by that is people who are not involved in the gay world because we also talked last week about how the closet metaphor didn't really exist until the 60s. It was more of like you lived in uh, the straight world and then you could have moved to the gay world and you could kind of bounce between right. or you could always live in the gay world. Right. And this was also um, so, this a lot of I think a lot of what we end up touching on and a lot of the history that's out there is more about gay men and not as much about uh, the lesbian side of things because contextual okay. standards were just different. Right, yeah. Uh, women, we were, I mean, we were back home with the kids, <laughs> barefoot and pregnant. So, <laughs> yep. yes, most of this uh, does not include gay women. Um, yeah. But we will talk about gay women now because we're going to talk about the 30s. Woohoo, so progressive. Ooh, um, pants. <laughs> actually, um, <laughs> bloomers, that's a good place to start, actually. Bloomers. Um, were a very important part of the women's lib movement in the mid 1800s. Um, <laughs> so bloomers being like the super poofy like pants, basically, and mm -hmm. women would adopt this like they called it a Turkish dress, where you would wear these kind of like billowy pants and then a dress that was like a little higher than the floor, like it was sort of cropped. And this was like the first introduction to women wearing pants. So this obviously did not help with the image of like suffragettes being lesbians and masculine women and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But um, yeah. Anyway, women wearing pants. That's where we're at. Fuck yeah. That was like the mid 1800s when we were wearing pants occasionally by now. Um, okay. So I am going to start with um, lodging houses, otherwise known as rooming houses. Uh, if you'll remember, in this time period, we had quite uh, the surge of immigration. And so at this point, uh, New York is kind of filled with single work, not single working men, some single working men, but also like a lot of men who have left their families overseas. Um, we are also getting to the point of the... Uh, and we'll talk about this more with the Harlem Renaissance, but we'll, uh, 
we're getting into the great migration at this point um, where economic conditions were so bad in the South. Obviously, and slavery has just been um, outlawed. So many people who are in uh, who are sharecroppers uh, moved up north for better opportunities. Um, and a lot of people landed in uh, these particular areas. So that's where we're at. Lodging and rooming houses. So according to one statistic, 61 of 61% of gay men in this particular New York jail had lived in a lodging or a rooming house uh, while others lived with family or boarded with others. Um, and like many statistics about this sort of thing during this time period, uh, census data doesn't really exist. Um, so police ar arrest and jail data is uh, all we have. So that'll be a recurring theme we'll see over and over again, where it'll be like arrest rec. We know this place was popular because of arrest records, uh, that sort of thing. So these buildings, they're apartment buildings, but I, from my understanding, it's more like, it's not like apartments like that I live in now. It's more like a big house with lots of rooms. So there's not a lot of physical privacy, but it's like a rent by the week situation. So obviously it's perfect for uh, transient workers, um, especially like unmarried men who are just like kind of bopping along. Uh, at this point, many um, had just come back from World War One uh, and needed work. And of course, we had just had this wave of uh, immigration. And so there's a fuck ton of people living in New York City. Uh, like working because obviously the city's developing super quickly um and then they have to have somewhere to live so all these uh rooming houses start popping up where like a landlady will own this apartment building and just rent out the individual rooms um now quick quick question because i don't remember all of my history this particular wave of new york immigration was this more because we're thinking we're, we're talking like 1920s 1930s so was that more it was like Irish Before. and maybe Polish. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like plenty of like Italian and immigrants at this time. I guess I'm talking about like sort of early uh, 1900s, even before the war. Oh, okay. um, and eventually I should have written this down. Eventually they put limits on immigrants, which, you know, hey, oh, love that. Um, but yeah, they ended up putting uh, caps, I guess, on how many people could migrate to the country. Uh, but yeah, so lots of workers, lots of people. In these apartment buildings, there's not a lot of physical privacy because it's you have your own room, but it doesn't open to the outside or anything like you're in a house together. So since there wasn't the physical privacy, people sort of just developed this culture where you mind your business. Um, mm -hmm. Could you imagine? Uh, <laughs> so even the landladies, like people just uh looked the other way uh people ate and socialized outside of the building but um looked the other way when tenants had guests of the same sex over or uh went to their went to other people's rooms um some of the landladies just didn't care some of them just needed the money so it's not like these are revolutionary landlords or anything here they're just you know they need tenants yep so and that's um, like that's like very much just kind of city culture that you see today, like regardless of what city you're in, like, you know, I live in Seattle and we have the reputation of like the Seattle freeze where the locals don't really like, like to talk or engage with each other. But like, that's not, that's not unique. 
you know like when you when Nick? you when you live in a really yeah exactly when you live in a really crowded space with a lot of people around you you just don't care you know you don't have the energy to care about like yeah you know what other people are doing and and you know who yeah, they're you bringing into their rooms or whatever however uh sometimes people do care um especially if those people have uh, maybe a strong quote unquote sense of morality or whatever, um, especially when it's uh, a business. And so um, in these in these situations uh, where, you know, these week by week tenants were coming in, they're bringing in same sex guests or, you know, just getting up to whatever they were getting up to. Um, there was uh, some moralist backlash that arose uh, from that situation. And so that kind of thing happens all the time like you know a lot of people don't give a shit but a couple people do and unfortunately the couple people who do give a shit usually are able to raise a big enough stink that uh it it draws attention that doesn't really need to be there uh but unfortunately action usually does need to be taken to you know make these town criers shut the fuck up um and so in in these situations um you know with with like total total strangers just like mixing and mingling with each other um and just kind of the transient nature of the whole thing um uh, it it eventually they they set up hotels um for workers to kind of i guess like separate from from i guess the true tenants or whatever debauchery i don't really know yeah doesn't really make all that much sense to me and i doubt it did to them either but like carolyn said sometimes i think it was just just needed to get paid i think it was supposed to like they were gonna market it as like nicer like apartments for workers or whatever but it's this it's serving the same exact purpose as the lodging houses were yeah i mean you rent hotel rooms by the night but it's like the same purpose you know so yeah i mean Um, i feel like doing weekly hotel rooms used to be like a lot more common too so like it was probably the same exact situation just yeah in different buildings <laughs> and so so a couple of these um uh lodging houses um were set up to kind of serve that purpose one of which uh was the Siemens Church Institute that's Siemens spelled S E A um but i mean Siemens just as an idea super gay you've seen what they wear that's gay <laughs> we'll get anyway. into the sailors <laughs> Uh, So the Siemens Church Institute was a uh, residential and social facility uh, that was intended to be used by sailors because there were, you know, always sailors that were passing through New York. Um, And uh, it ended up serving the same purpose as rooming houses because, I mean, just because you, you know, call it something different doesn't mean that the purpose it serves is going to be any different. Like people see rooms, they're going to take the rooms, you know. Um, And I'm going to throw it way back real quick to when we talked about uh, San Francisco a little bit, a couple episodes, whenever that was. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. same deal, uh, after the first world war, they set up, uh, these like bars that would s- specifically be for like sailor men, men in uniform. And, um, you know, now we have leather, leather daddies <laughs> and like a gay uniform. <laughs> That's exactly where that came from. So just little yeah. fun facts like that. Honestly, fucking seamen, the Navy, the military, some of the gayest, gayest, gayest shit. But because you're drafting we can do <laughs> at this time boys at the like their sexual peak and they're in same sex facilities. usually virgins yeah, yeah oftentimes virgins and then at the same time they're gonna touch now poopies. now women are in the workforce 
in a same sex environment for the first time. It all worked out. It, you know what? It really did. Yeah. So tell us about the Mills houses. Yeah. So there were a couple Mills houses. And actually, when I was doing my research, I found a third one. Um, but nice. because it wasn't included on the notes, I don't know if it was uh, really significant. Um, I don't know. But there are two um, Mills houses to be highlighted. Um, one uh, was on Bleecker Street in New York, uh, and one was on Rivington Street. And they were. Um, specifically for unmarried workers which to me is like i don't know that seems like a very posh name for like a sex den i don't know if that's <laughs> what it turned into but like you have a bunch of like sad single probably horny people in a building together well i mean that's, you know, yeah you might want to get it fumigated <laughs> yeah i mean that's, um, the, that's the whole idea is like that these are usually men like 18 to like 25 often not married um sometimes have left family overseas so like loneliness ensues yep um and like carolyn said because census records weren't really a thing and even if they were it wouldn't really matter because of the transient nature of a lot of these establishments um we only really yeah, know I think how we have popular like these Sorry. Yeah, I think we have like census estimates, maybe even retroactively. But yeah, like you said, certainly not for gay things for that long. <laughs> yeah, because um, we all just like to turn the other cheek, like Jesus said. Um, but we know that these were really popular gay locations um, because of the homosexual crime uh, reports and um, police records of or sorry, arrest records um, from these locations, which I think is really interesting. It's like, I don't I don't know. That's a tangent, but yeah. So you would get arrested for like cross dressing or for um, like God forbid being caught with another man. But you know that's kind of the extreme version. I mean, anything like having long hair, things like that, uh, can get you arrested for homo behavior. Wild, yeah, draconian, yeah. Um, so as the village people said, we love to stay at the YMCA. Uh, and that was, um, that was also, uh, a player in, in this, uh, housing situation. Uh, they used to have a few, uh, residential hotels and dormitories, um, that started to go up around, uh, 1896, late 1800s, um, and by World War One, so from around 1914 to about 1918, uh, it actually had a gay reputation. And if you've seen the music video for YMCA, it all tracks those fucking mustaches, man. I swear to God. Um. Two of which that were built during the Depression uh, were the Sloan House, which was located on West 34th and 9th, uh, and that had about 1,500 rooms. And then there was the West Side YMCA, which was on 63rd and Central Park. Um, yeah, just gay people hanging out in these houses together. What could go wrong? Hilarity ensues. And also probably yeah. a lot of STDs. Well, this is... We have already done... An episode on the AIDS crisis so you know we do know how that worked out um anyway the reason yep. I bring up the reason I wanted to talk about these like lodging houses that is that I kind of feel like it's a precursor to what we see in the late 60s but really the 70s with um well I guess 60s early 70s uh with drag houses uh mm. mm -hmm. yeah which we'll talk about that time period another time I suppose, but uh, it's the historical that's... roots of the found family, you know, right? Yeah, um, but it's also uh, to talk about the fact that you know the ho the drag house uh, structure 
um, is separate from the history of uh, drag balls, uh, which is our next topic. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about the masquerade and the civil ball of the Hamilton Lodge, which may sound familiar. It's um, probably the first drag ball and also the ma- most famous. Uh, so the Hamilton Lodge was a black fraternal organization and a social group uh, who held masquerade balls in Harlem in the 30s. Um, so the first one was held in 1869 with no homosexual intentions, but uh, it gave the opportunity for people to cross-dress and, as one author put it, uh, volunteer as the entertainment. Um, I think that was from a newspaper clipping. I'll have to find it and cite my sources. Uh, who knows if it's that or just, like, this is an excuse to cross-dress because I'll have a full mask on. Um, I mean that, so, but also like if you held... if you get drunk enough, like think about the think about the theater kids and the Broadway girlies. When they get drunk enough, they also volunteer to perform. Sometimes you just need an audience. <laughs> I guess so. Um, it was originally held at the Rockland Palace at two eighty Frederick Douglass Avenue at the corner of Fifteenth Street. Um, at one point, it was held at the Saint Nicholas Palace downtown, um, the Renaissance unique ballroom and casino. Um, by the mid-20s, sort of at the height of Prohibition, up to 7,000 patrons were going to these bars. So, like, they were extremely popular, like, extremely public, uh, and these drag bars just start popping up around the same time, uh, specifically in the Bowery, which we talked about, um, along Mm -hmm. uh, Bowery Street. uh, It was kind of known for being a more impoverished area of town with a lot of hustlers, um, but it's also where uh, punk rock was birthed, and so it's also the most important area of New York. Um, we can talk about CBGB another time, but right now, Bowery's popping up with drag bars along with the Le- Levy District of Southside Chicago, uh, and we're starting to see the first lesbian enclaves start popping up in Harlem and in the village. So here we are, Roaring Twenties, prosperous times. And loose morals, and alcohol is illegal, so we have to go underground. So we're being exposed to other illegal things like gay sex and drag. Um, so what that is referred to is uh, the pansy craze. People just can't get enough of those horticultural lads. Um, oh, the, the straights want to. Gotta love them. The straights want to party. The gays want to congregate. It provides a convenient cover, uh, similar to how, you know, Times Square is the theater district and Greenwich Village was the boho district. So that was kind of a convenient cover for gays. Like, there was one quote about, like, even the most extravagant gay doesn't stand out in Times Square. Right? Because there's just so many still true today insane things happening uh so middle and high class gays uh congregate with the straights um and so we even now start to see the interesting dichotomy of sort of white upper middle class gays versus like immigrant uh worker gays um who are partying in the same places but not with the same people um so the stories of these parties at the speakeasies and saloons and dance halls and honky tonks 
uh, they'll make it into the paper and later into the radio. And so, of course, that causes other people to be aware of the scene. Uh, 1929, October 20, 29th, I think. Black Friday, the stock market crashes and then we're in a depression until 1941, at which point we are still in a, in a world war. So, like, not great times. Uh, and this, of course, makes it an easy scapegoat for moralists. Yeah. Speaking of depression, my dad told me that uh, we're supposed to be on the verge of another one of those right now, which is super great. Well, um, yeah. Uh, please. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully uh, we won't have to deal with prohibition uh, during this upcoming grand fuckery. I don't Whatever. think they will ever make booze illegal again. So anyway, Max is going to tell us more about prohibition, which we sort of talked about last time, but I think it's uh, important to go over again. Um, just kind of the story of how that affected nightlife. So take it away. Yeah. So despite the fact that uh, in the roaring 20s, everyone was feeling this, I don't know, this grand joie de vivre and everyone was absolutely losing their mind and like just fucking partying um this was also the time of prohibition which i don't know if they realized when they made alcohol illegal just how the effects of that would just ripple out yep. uh forever um forever. but so they they really 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 fucked up and they were like you know what that good juice that we love, that yummy stuff, it's bad, actually. And we're going to make it illegal. And so they did. Um, and that was in uh, the early 20s um, from January of 1920. So literally, you know, day one uh, and lasted all the way until December of 1933. So 13 years uh, with alcohol being federally illegal, uh, which honestly kind of spurred a culture of its own with um uh, uh, speakeasies and um, rum runners, Light, all that lightning, moonshine, uh, moonshine, yep. Um, which actually, I am southern, however, I did not have my first uh, taste of moonshine until Christmas last year. I love it, horrible, horrible defensive. stuff. Okay, well, <laughs> thank god, I mean, I'm honestly, a just. Girl. Uh, <laughs> just grab a bottle of isopropyl alcohol it's the same shit so um <laughs> during prohibition um a lot of culture moved underground not just uh alcohol culture but like party culture and and um basically music and i don't want to say that fun. yeah i don't i mean i don't want to say that everything fun is tied to alcohol but the fact that it did all kind of move underground at the same time i don't know just a coincidence i guess um but yeah, everything... is tied to dancing. True, which is sinful. Um, and so everything moved underground, and that obviously, you know, includes uh, speakeasies and, and bars and, and things like that. But it also means that people who were not directly involved in gay life then became exposed to it because uh, the gay party culture uh, moved underground with everything else, and so did the straight party culture. And so at a certain point, if you knew there was a party happening, if you knew there were going to be, be drinks there, you were going to show up. Uh, and so it, it was going to expose you to things that you might not have been um, at other points in your life when the good juice was legal. Uh, and so uh, alliances started to happen in the underground uh, between, I don't know, what would you say? Um, 
just different like run runners different i don't know alliance of the underground is just like a phrase that i read and i like to use it a lot on this podcast because i think it just accurately describes how like there's a community of people who um sort of have loyalty to each other because they're in the same sort of socioeconomic situation even if it's not because of the same Mm -hmm. reason so like if you're a hustler versus um like a exotic pharmacist if you know what i mean uh well so like underground crime circles always existed but prohibition is interesting because like alcohol had been legal for all of humanity and now all of a sudden regular people kind of became criminals despite the fact that they you know really just wanted that good good juice um and so you meet people you build connections you're exposed to things that you wouldn't normally be it's kind of interesting um don't think that alcohol ever should have been illegalized but you know just interesting things came from it um so anyway fast forward to uh 1933 um mid 1930s uh prohibition ends uh and then officials and law enforcement begin to crack down on general debauchery um which they used as an excuse basically to crack down on gay behavior because now that um now that i guess the moralists had switched directions or at least they realized that you know alcohol wasn't all that bad they still they still wanted someone to be mad at and unfortunately that group was uh either black people immigrants or gay people and so they had just like now they had to use whatever means they could within the law um to persecute those they wanted to persecute uh tale as old as time unfortunately uh and so this included different efforts such as uh no liquor licenses for gay bars um no dancing with the same sex as carolyn mentioned earlier you could be fined or arrested for cross-dressing or if your hair was too long it was really really bizarre um that's how they made it work. Um, so as a result of that, liquor was only be allowed was only allowed to be served in quote ordinary places. Orderly uh, places. which seems orderly places, my bad, which seems vague. Um, because that's you know, what even does that mean? Well, because but, then you can make it whatever you want. Exactly. Yeah, except for, you know, gay bars. Um so as a whole, even though the community had already gone underground with um prohibition they were forced to remain there and uh go into uh hiding um even in these historically gay neighborhoods uh and it was it was just a a very panicked reaction to um by quote orderly people i guess or the moralists um they were just panicked to see how uh open and accepted gay life and gay culture had become during prohibition since everyone was mingling together and so they needed to shut it down they wanted to shut it down although i will say this was before the term homosexual was included in the Bible because that was not until the forties, but there was still a fear of gay people. Um, I guess because we're cooler than them and they felt threatened. Yeah. Not all Um, homophobia comes from the Bible. Don't worry. There's plenty of kinds out there. Yep. Yep. Don't lose any sleep about it. It's also a lot of it is sometimes not even necessarily homophobia. It's, it's just like essentialist gender roles and, uh, misogyny, but also homophobia. And, I mean, and just like moralistic issues, like a lot of times the people in power just thought that it, like it wasn't necessarily a homophobia thing, but like the acts and the culture that arose from this community didn't fit with the morals that they felt everyone should abide by. 
um, and uh, unfortunately, it you know led them to persecute the whole group. But you know, not that it makes it better, you know, just because it wasn't capital H homophobia. Anyway, um, it also became illegal at this time to show gay characters in film. Um, and then drag balls uh, had to really shrink in scale. Uh, they couldn't be, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was still very much like a big loud party, um, but they weren't as, um, I guess, respected as they had been before. They weren't maybe as popular. Um, and uh, they were also more segregated. And I believe it was around this time um, that we started to see a separation from uh, black drag balls and white drag balls because, um, and I think we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, uh, a lot of gay history was not really intersectional in terms of race. I mean, there were, you know, aspects where it overlapped, but there was still a lot of gay racism and there still is today. Um, but it wasn't, you know, white gays and black gays sitting together and being like, Hey, we both got, you know, something in common. We're going to be friends. No, the racism thing was still very much there. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, and so as a result um, of everything kind of going underground, uh, a lot of private parties started to to show up. Um, and so obviously, you know, like I said, there were the balls, but um, then there were also just parties in people's apartments. Um, and one of the most famous hostesses of these uh, private parties uh, was a woman named Alayla Walker. Um, she was a businesswoman, a patron of the arts, and a daughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Um, she herself was not gay, at least not admittedly so, um, but she was like a mother of the gays, very fierce ally, and through these parties to be a safe space for gay people, uh, specifically those that were, um, you know, feeling endangered during their day-to-day -day lives and needed a place to get away. And you know what, um, actually, I don't... I don't even know if that's like really accurate. I know I wrote that, but I don't know that it's fully accurate uh, that she threw it as a safe haven for gays More just that like she threw parties because this was an extravagant and generous woman who loved to party and it became, became a safe haven for gays because there was no like restrictions on who could come in. So. Well, I like to believe she yeah. was like a gay mom, but you know, well, I don't know all the facts. She I might have been. There. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, they were so these these parties that she threw were so um exclusive and so popular that even sometimes celebrities would make appearances. Uh, and the cool thing about this is it was just a um, it was just a townhouse. It was just I mean, she ended up buying uh one townhouse beside the other, so it, you know it kind of became bigger. Um, but it's not like this was a club. It wasn't some fancy bar or anything. It was just this woman's house. She just liked to have a good time. Yeah. And you know and, what? Fucking love that. Yeah. And she eventually like created like a studio on one of the floors and like one of the floors, she ended up making it like a membership private club type thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, the dark she really tower. made the most yep. of it. The dark tower. Yes. Which love that name. Um, <laughs> Very dramatic. And so when you're throwing parties in apartments uh you kind of have to i mean there are different factors that you need to think about like this is your house but also if you're comfortable with having a lot of people over at your house and if you have a bunch of people that want to come to these parties and get away that's a great fucking way to make rent money and so some of these parties were called rent parties because they would be thrown uh on the last day of the month um 
or maybe just a couple of days before the last day of the month. Um, and there would be admission that would be charged that would go directly to the host uh, so that they could pay their landlord the next day, which I think is kind of fierce. Yeah, that's the idea is like at the end of the party, you have enough money and you take the money and go pay the landlady. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Would love to do that. But I live in a hotel room called a studio now, so can't really do that. I also don't like people, so it's fine. Um, then there was uh, another type of um, independent, more private party called a uh, buffet flat or just generally buffet flats. Um, and these were more um, these were certain black speakeasies and brothels um, because you could get booze, you get sex, you get weed. Um, and it was usually in an apartment for private sake, but it was called a buffet flat because you could kind of get whatever you want, you know, take a little bit of everything. Um, there were an estimated 10,000 of these buffet flats uh, throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn um, during the height of Prohibition in 1927. Um, and it says some functioned as banks for Pullman train porters who made a lot of money but couldn't invest it anywhere, which could you okay. elaborate on that? Because I don't. Yes. Yeah. And I'm glad you asked me to because actually this part was super cool. Okay, so um, after the Great Migration, so uh, fucking what's his name, J.S. Pullman or something, he specifically um wanted to hire formerly enslaved people, mm. um, and so this was like one of the best ways for formerly enslaved Black people to make money. So uh, and they were like, tra like traveling tra uh, train um porters like flight attendant sort of i think for mm, yeah long trains um so these people were making good money but um they weren't allowed to put it in the banks because the banks wouldn't take black people's money um and so instead of uh so that and then just instead of just carrying it with them on their pockets they would leave it with um the people at the buffet flat so they would leave their you know however met they their month's paycheck with the um words host help, host thank you um host or like whoever was living there uh and then like the host could kind of lend it out a little bit make make some interest the interest and then when the pullman train porter comes back through town um he can pick up his money again so like they're literally functioning as just small banks that's super fucking cool. Which I think is just so interesting. I really want to look more into that because I just thought that was like the coolest little fact. Allies of the underground. Yes. Pretty um. Much. Anything else you want to add before I uh, start this last section? No, other than just, I don't know. I've said it before, but just like gays love to party and gays look out for each other. I mean, okay, maybe I won't say gays look out for each other because a lot of times they don't, but. It is this whole idea of... It's nice when they do. It is, yeah. And this whole idea of allies of the underground, which I know that you said is just a term that you read, but it's like, it really does kind of... I don't know. It's really significant and it's really interesting to think about because when you put a bunch of people in the same situation who wouldn't ordinarily interact with each other or you know who all have one foundational thing in common, uh, especially one that they're all persecuted for or um, you know something that's maybe illegal... It's just interesting to see what kind of culture and what practices come from that, like these, yeah. you know, little bank situations or these buffet flats, these apartment parties. It's just, I don't know. It's really yeah. cool. I know. I love it. 
Um, okay, so the last part we're going to talk about is kind of has been happening for this whole time. So, like, all of this has been happening under the Harlem Renaissance, which lasted about 1918 to uh, 1930s or so. Basically, um, the Depression <laughs> uh, ended it. Um, and so think back to your, like, elementary school history class. The Harlem Renaissance was just referring to the fact that after the great migration uh plenty of um black artists writers poets uh musicians uh ended up in harlem and made beautiful music and influenced each other and it was also a great bastion for gay culture um one of my favorite parts of this is dirty blues um i think that we as a society don't listen to the blues enough, and I think we'd be a lot better off if we did. But anyway. Uh, Carolyn's going to start her own was, music podcast one of these days. Y'all just wait. Please, no. I don't need to give myself something else to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was almost normal within the Harlem music scene for women to express same-sex attraction in their performances. For one thing, the blues was like very, very sexual at this time. Um, and one of my favorite examples of that is this song. Uh, I think her name is Ida B. Cox, Ida Cox or something. Um, it's I'm a one hour mama. Uh, so no one minute papa ain't the kind of man for me. Ooh. Set your alarm clock, papa. One hour, that's proper. Love me like I like to be. I may want love for one hour, then it. decide to make it two. Takes an hour before I get started. Maybe three, four, I'm through. <laughs> um, Anyway, oh, yeah. so lots of lots of great sexy songs coming out during this time. Um, anyway, some of the most recognizable names um, in this particular scene are, of course, uh, Ma Rainey. This is the mother of the blues, and she really bridged the gap between vaudeville and the blues. Um, she particularly had this song called Prove It On Me Blues, uh, which is about her being a lesbian. Uh, but she was basically like, okay, prove it, prove it on me. Um, and this ended up being like super in influential for Melissa Etheridge and kind of like the wave of pro lesbian music we ended up getting. So Ma Rainey, the mother of the blues. Then we also have Bessie Smith, the empress of the blues. Um, and then we have Lucille Bogan, who also went by just Bessie Jackson, uh, who wrote the Bulldyke blues. So. Even from a non-gay perspective, there were still songs being written about gay relationships just from, like, an observational standpoint. Like, there was this one song called The Boy in the Boat by George Hanna, and it was just, like, talking about gay people. But he wasn't gay, and it wasn't, like, his own experience. It was just, like, writing a song about any other subject. Well, and it wasn't just um, it wasn't just music, too. I mean, obviously, the Harlem Renaissance is, pro I would say, probably most well-known for the music that came out of it. Um, but I mean, there were, there was, it was just a, a whole, I mean, it was called a Renaissance for a reason. It was a whole cult, cultural rebirth of, of art um, and, uh, and culture that, you know, we respect now, but at that time it was still very underground and correct me if I'm wrong, but Langston Hughes was, um, yeah, it, during this time. Right. And he was, that's a, exactly you know, right. Gay poet, um, a, a black gay poet and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot Not of, con I don't, there's actually a lot of, I don't, 
think he ever like announced himself as gay. I think it's just people. It's like Walt Whitman, where we're just like gathering it from his white writing. Oh so, yeah, well, you know. Well, I mean, we're just now in the last like twenty years or so getting really into mainstream discourse of of the intersectionality of of being black and queer. But it's like well, this. It you can't. I don't know if that's I don't accurate, know. But <laughs> well, I don't know. Black but feminism, I think, just, has been around since like the '60s. So, uh, oh yeah, for sure. But it's like, I mean, I don't know. You hear about, I don't. know. That's another episode. And I'm white, so I'm not gonna, you know, pretend to know anything on that. Um, just watch a lot of TikToks. But it's like <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't. I can't read. Um, ah, fuck. You can't just like. I don't know. It it was such a uh, rich time, and there's so many different aspects of of these different cultures that go into it, that it's not, you know, just gay. It's not just black. It was just this blooming of culture that, um, I don't know. We, we, I feel like we still feel it today. Yes. Um, yeah, no, we absolutely. I don't know if I actually said anything just now, but that's okay. Just music. I can't really. That's okay. Yeah. I'm Um. just music. (laughs) I can't really sort out my brain, but it's like, ah, you know, yeah. Well, well, I mean, it was just a really open time for people to, uh, especially women, to subvert gender norms specifically. Like there was this mm-hmm. one person, and I, maybe some people have heard this name before. Um, Gladys Bentley was a blues singer and a pianist from uh, F- Philadelphia. She's got this contralto voice, like Cher, so very like low and sexy and beautiful. Um. <clears throat> She was this black lesbian cross-dressing performer um, who came to fame by performing at Harry Hansberry's Clam House uh, when they needed a, quote, male pianist. And so she just started cross-dressing. And she was so well-renowned and, like, her shows were so well-attended. And she would just do this thing where she was, like, completely dressed like a man and really masculine. But then she would also be, like, really, like, sexy like with the men um so gender bends yeah just like funny fun stuff uh so the club was actually renamed after her eventually uh called barbara's um after her stage name which was uh bobby menton so other notable names in the scene were ethel waters which i found out is like a great 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 aunt of uh crystal waters who is the person who did that song that's like Run it back to the middle and around again. I'm gonna be there till the end, 100 percent pure love. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Josephine Baker, of course, Alberta Hunter, and then Jackie Mons Mabley, who I wanted to bring up because she's around. She's from just down the road. Uh, she's from Brevard. Oh, really? Um, she was just one of the first. Yeah, she's just one of the first openly gay comedians who came out in uh, 1921. Also, like all of these, I was just people... in Brevard. Nice, uh, yeah. All of these people I've mentioned, like none of these people are from New York. They're from like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Carolina, the South, Philadelphia, yeah, Kentucky. Um, not that Philadelphia is not the South, but you know, other than that, well, um, but anyway, so like again, for privacy's sake, they would uh start these speakeasies that people specifically would go to because there's no doorman 
Um, and so you have these like underground jazz clubs sort of that are actually just parties at somebody's house, but you can actually just kind of like slip in unseen in the middle of the night. Um, and then a lot of these drag balls were happening at like four in the morning after everybody else, like after the nightlife workers had gotten off work and everybody else had gone home and it was like safe to be out. So like as much as we're talking about how like gay culture was blooming, like it's still not, you're they're still not allowed to be like openly gay. And it's so, it's so weird because the way it sounds, it sounds like gay life was everywhere and it's great, but like it was not safe. It was not good times. Just good things were happening, but it wasn't like, it was everywhere, but it was still it was still secret. Yeah. So it was still gay so, life versus straight life. So anyway, um that's what I have for you today. Next time we get around to recording a podcast, we will talk about World War uh one as well as Yeah, no mostly that up to maybe Korea nineteen fifties. We'll see how I feel. Um, but that's all I have. Do you have any other commentary you would like to add, Max? It's just, it is so interesting to me. It's like the butterfly effect, you know? It's like if prohibition had never happened. Oh my God, I know. Like the music and the culture that we have today would probably be a lot different. And it's not just related to alcohol. It's because like prohibition was this domino and then another domino was these underground cultures and then another domino was what that did to gay culture what that did to black culture and then another domino is um what what arose from that time and the period following that and then um and then you know the wars too it's just like how each one of these events affects the other and how i don't know if any of those would have happened the way that they did if so much culture had not been forced to go underground with alcohol during the time of prohibition, it's like, and I mean, obviously prohibition is not the only factor at play here. There's a lot of other things that happened throughout history that, you know, drove events the way that they went. Yeah. We're also just talking about like one city. This is like just America, mm -hmm. one part of America. So like there is something completely different happening in Berlin, you know, but I don't know shit about Berlin. (laughs) It almost, it almost makes me want to become like a history major. I say that I'm not in college, but like, you know what I mean? Like it almost makes me want to, cause I can, I, I understand the enthusiasm that people who study history and, you know, academic historians, people like that, I understand the enthusiasm they have because it's like, it's not just a boring fact or a certain date. It's like, you don't understand. It's this one thing happened. And then as a result of that, 10 other things happen. And as a result of those 10 things, 10 other things happen. And it's like to be able to have such a clear understanding of, of the way that we got from like point A to, you know, point M or wherever the fuck we're at is like, oh, it's just so interesting. And of course, it's more interesting when it's, you know, gay because <laughs> gay history isn't taught in schools. And, you know, this is a lot of history yeah. that we don't learn. But but also like, God damn. Also, like, somebody from a different mindset than me would probably, like, take these events and um, draw completely different conclusions based on completely different, uh, like, ideology background that they have. And that's sort of just, like, the nature of arguing. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So not to get too 
but I but yeah no I I know what you mean it's a shame they make it so boring in public school because like history can be really interesting to learn uh when your public school actually gets past like 1900 it's also a shame that they I mean let me not get on this soapbox but like we the fact that we're not taught gay history and black history and marginalized histories like that when they have shaped the lives that we live today is like bizarre to me you know a fun fact is that um in kindergarten we celebrated black history month and everybody had to learn about a important figure from black history and uh i was assigned althea gibson who was the first uh black professional tennis player nice nice okay well um (laughs) tell me it's been a while um tell me what you're into um what am i into oh my god i haven't really been like watching or reading or listening to anything because i've been kind of traveling a lot um i still been listening you're to into that dollywood normal. i know yes that. well yeah so yeah i went to dollywood with my sister and it was really fun um and i love that theme park it's the best theme park ever also i faced my fears i've never gone upside down on a roller coaster before and i do, did go upside down on a roller coaster so that was kind of wild shit very brave of me um so yes of course into dolly Parton always um i literally don't even have an answer yeah i'm into uh racking up those hotel and airline reward points what are you into um i'm into a lot of things um it's been a while and i've just been like jotting them down whenever i think of something um so first the memes and the way that twitter exploded when the queen died some of the funniest shit i have ever seen let me not go to hell. Um, so, so I'm into that for sure. Um, I'm also into this band called Better Love. Um, it's they've got an interesting sound. I, I feel like every week I'm in, you know into some new band that I want to plug, but um, I don't know. They've got they've got a sound that very much appeals to me because some of it there's like a um indie synth pop vibe to it, but then other times it's like kind of reminiscent of like 2008 pop punk. Um, it's a very interesting brand and it it i don't know i really like i like them a lot um i am also into the sandman on netflix i finally got around to watching that i watched it on my flights mr sandman pretty much um homeboy first of all it's a um neil gaiman work so like i knew it was going to be incredible um but also homeboy's vibe is just like You having fun? <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I had to finish the verse. Um, homeboy. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's game in, so it's incredible. But like homeboy's vibe, the guy that plays uh the Sandman, I don't remember his name. Um, but he there's like ah there are layers to his character that I really appreciate because he's like intense and can come off as cool, but he also has this like softness to him. I don't know. It's like it's very good um you should definitely watch it if you haven't yet um additionally i'm into be real um carolyn i don't think you're on be real but uh it's a lot of fun um oh my friend has that i know what that is so it's fun because it's like i don't know i you know we talked to um several episodes ago about um 
seeing Instagram and in its baby stages. Uh, and so being on a social media app now, I don't know if it's going to take off. I don't know if it's going to become the next big thing. It seems to be pretty popular right now, which is kind of cool. But um, it like it, it is just cool to see, you know, a, a social media app in their in their baby phases because a and most importantly there are no ads which i love oh, it is kind of mid right now because like not that many people are on it and there's just two tabs there's like your friends and then discover um but it's like i i like it for a lot of the same reasons that i like tiktok because it's like very much a slice of life type thing you can just see what you know people around the world are up to um because the concept is really cool you you know you get the notification, you take a picture of whatever it is you're doing, and that's it. I guess you could stage it if you want, but it's hard to predict. Um, and you also can't like scroll unless you like post your own. Um, so I don't know. It's cool. Um, so that's what I'm into. Uh, and then last thing, what are your little victories? Shit. Um, I got roadside assistance to show up after four and a half hours. Because I had a goddamn, I have a damn slow leak in my tire, and I knew about it. I knew about it, and I was like, I'll take it to the mechanic in the morning. And I came out in this morning, and it was completely flat. And I don't, ha like, there's nowhere close enough to even think about trying to ride on the flat tire. Like, no way. Um, I don't have a tire jack, so I had to call fucking roadside assistance. Um, in the time it took, I could have walked to the store, bought a tire jack, walked back, fixed my tire, walked back, returned the tire jack, and walked back to my house, and then took a three-hour nap <laughs> in the time that it took them to show up. You know up. what you should invest in is- um, That's not a victory. What am I talking you about? You should invest in those- um, I've got one of these, and then I got Eli one of these for, uh, uh, I think, Hanukkah last year, because he, he was so into it. but. Um, portable air compressors you can just plug them into the um yeah yeah no i immediately looked yeah. them up it looks like there's some basic ones available for like yeah, 30 dollars, and that will be a very uh soon purchase for me um that was not a victory um what is a victory is that because i had a flat tire uh i, I or like that i because I knew that I had a slow leak, I've been driving less and walking more. So okay, there you nice. go. What about you? Um, my little victories are both moving related. Um, I <laughs> that it's over. <laughs> yes. Um. So first of all, I am a very sentimental person. Um, and so I always get pretty emotional when i like leave an apartment even if i've hated it just because i don't know there's like like all your essence is in that one space for a certain amount of time and then like leaving Same. it it's just you know it's difficult for me um but i left my first ever apartment in seattle about a month ago um and i did not cry um the day of i did cry beforehand <laughs> but i did not cry the day of like when I, you know, took my last look around and uh, left the keys on the counter or whatever. And that's normally like when you look back, Katya said this on uh, one time, um, looking into an empty apartment is chilling. And it totally fucking is because yeah, when you it. take that last look, like it is just such a visceral, like, ugh, bad, gross feeling. Um, 
But I don't know if it's because I was being productive or if it's because I had a lot of other shit going on. But I did my whole grieving process like beforehand. Um, and maybe it's because I procrastinated things so much. But it's like we literally left the apartment at like basically the last possible minute. Um, like we were supposed to be out by uh, September 1st and <laughs> we finished cleaning uh, like 10 p.m. September 30th or, or August 31st, whatever. Um, horrible but i think because of that though i was so focused on okay let's get this done let's you know let's go we gotta go we gotta go um i did not cry so i was proud of myself um and then yeah it was a short time span i moved apartments in like for not feeling feelings just distract yourself at all times okay that is not advice i would give to anyone else but for me i felt good about it um and then yeah i like we did not I don't even think we packed a single box until like a week before we were supposed to move. And then we got it all done in the span of like a week or two. Uh, Of course, my moving story turned out to be a lot worse and a lot more stressful. But you know what? Other little victory. I'm still here and it's all done. It's over. It's all done. Yep. I'm still standing. Yeah, Yeah. All right. Well, do you have anything else for us, Carolyn? Nope. That's it. All right. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening, for those of you that have. And thank you, thank you for your patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I could have controlled the circumstances in any way, uh, it would not have been this long of a break. Uh, but literally everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. Um, so, what? Real quick. I forgot about my biggest victory of all, because it's kind of been a while. Oh, yeah, sure. I went to Washington, D.C. with my dad to see The Damned open for Blondie. Oh, yeah. I saw your story. You were living. That show was fucking... It was incredible. You know, sometimes you see these legacy bands, and it's like, "Mm, okay, they're old people, fine, whatever. Like, this show was so good. The venue was so perfect. Debbie Harry, Clem Burke, like... This show was perfect. I will never recover. I haven't had post-concert depression in a very long time, but like, wow, it really stuck with me. I was watching the videos for days. That was an amazing concert. Everybody should go listen to The Damned. They put out the first punk single in the UK in 1974. It was before even Patti Smith put out Horses. Anyway. Well, um, I'm glad that you had a great time because when I worked a blondie concert debbie harry was not really there even though she was there it was pretty rough but i'm glad she had a good time she's also just that's also kind of like her performance style so there could have been something lost in translation perhaps true yeah i i was never a big blondie fan she's very like cannot relate to that statement but fine i wasn't really Um, i guess i can move past it anyway anyway um Thank you all so much for listening and for your patience. We very much appreciate it. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard or if you are looking forward to new content, uh, please be sure to uh, follow us on uh, social media. You can find us on Instagram at Mutable Immutables. You can find us on Twitter at Immutables Pod. Uh, you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And we also do put the podcast up on YouTube. Uh, and the user is also Mutable Immutables. Um, it's been a while since I've done this, so if I'm forgetting anything, I apologize. Um, but yeah, it's great to be back. It's great, great, great to be done with all of this moving nonsense. And I'm very much looking forward to learning more about 
fucking gay history. It it it's becoming very very interesting. I love it. And and as the Tom Robinson band once said, sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey. Yep. <laughs> very that. Okay. That's all it. All right. Thank y'all so much. Bye. Bye.